Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. We shall go to the Word of the Lord. And I know some of you are saying, oh no, we have to listen to him two Sundays in a row now. Pray a whole lot for Pastor Bill that he'll be back <laughs> next Sunday. I know he, he really hates to miss and hates that he can't be up here in his pulpit. That's right. That's right, Royce. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's amazing what a church dinner can do, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Okay. If you would, turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. And I'm not going to have you stand this morning because we have uh, uh, not a whole lot to read, but I want to read it in three three different sections, so we'll uh, dispense with the standing and, and the reading initially right now, but we will go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and for just bringing us together and for your wonderful holy presence with us, Lord, that, that we have felt and enjoyed and, and we can enjoy in the fellowship with uh, your people. We just thank you that we can look to your word this morning. We can hear what you have to say to us, and, and we just pray, Lord, you would allow us to put this in our heart. Let us use your word for the purpose that it is designed, because you said it won't return to you void, but it will fulfill what, fulfill what it is you sent it out for. And use us, Lord, for that purpose. Help us to just to glorify your name, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Uh, well, as you know, this is the last week of uh, of Jesus before his uh, crucifixion actually we're getting down to the last day or two before his his crucifixion things are winding down to the culmination of, of the reasons that he was he was set here and uh, today we're going to talk about the uh, the last, last Supper, the last Passover he spent with his disciples. Now, I want to look at it in three sections. The first will be verses 12 through 16. That is the preparations for the Passover. Then the actual Passover uh, Supper itself and with emphasis on the betrayal of Jesus. That's verses 17 through 21. And then the institution of the Lord's Supper, verses 22 through 26. Now, this is the Passover season. And the Passover was one of the most important feasts in uh, the Jewish year. It celebrated the, del the deliverance of Israel from Egypt when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt. 
and kill the firstborn of everyone and everything that did not have the blood applied to the doorposts of their homes, which, of course, was only the Hebrews because they had followed the instructions that God gave to Moses saying that they were to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and using hyssop apply the blood to the doorpost and therefore when the death angel came and saw the blood that he would pass over their home and, and spare the firstborn would leave him with life now it is fitting and it was in God's plan from the beginning from the foundation of the world if you will that this would be the time that Jesus would die that he would be the ultimate final Passover lamb now at the time of well let me say this too before I forget it you know the devil has tried many times to kill Jesus from the time he was born he has tried to to kill him but this was God's plan to work out the ultimate Passover and, and the ultimate sacrifice for sin now at the time of Jesus Passover was was celebrated on the 15th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, which is the month of, of uh, Nisan, uh, which corresponds to uh, late March, early April uh, on our calendar. And it was always observed on the last day before the first full moon after the spring equinox. Now, you may have wondered how, how we figure out where when Easter is. We follow a similar pattern because, remember, the Jews used a uh, lunar calendar, whereas we use a sun calendar. But to figure the time of Easter, we use a similar uh, formula. Easter is the first Sunday following the first full moon of the after the spring equinox. And, of course, that's only a, a couple of... Uh, of Sundays from now. Passover this year I think will fall on the 31st on, on Saturday. Uh, Easter um, I think is the day of the first full moon actually. But anyway, that's all beside the point. Um, but it was on that day that the, the lambs were, the Paschal lambs were killed, eaten, along with unleavened bread, leaven which symbolizes sin. And the, all the leaven, you not only ate unleavened bread, but all leaven, or all the yeast, if you will, were, was removed from the homes and unleavened bread eaten for seven days. It was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread and closely associated, a part of, actually, the Passover um, uh Passover celebration. Well, let's look now at verses uh, 12 through uh, 16. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Paschal, Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go to 
and prepare that you may eat the Passover. And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, normally the Passover would be prepared in the home, but Jesus and his disciples, who were from Galilee, were in Jerusalem. And Jesus had to be in Jerusalem at this time. They didn't have time to go back to Galilee and prepare at home. Now, if you live within 15 miles of Jerusalem, you had to come into the city anyway and prepare your Passover. But, you know, they had to have a place. And so I suppose the disciples knew, you know, something had to be done. So he says, you know, they said, where do you want us to uh, prepare it? Well, Jesus had already made plans, as always. You know, he doesn't leave things to chance, does he? He had already made plans. He knew what, what he was going to do, and the arrangements were already made. So it says, And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now this made me think, now when we were in Scotland, we were in the um, city of Oban, at the same time as our, our friend Shirley, who is from Scotland, from Edinburgh, and she was leading a uh, group of artists who were on uh, an art thing going on there, and she told them, she knew we were in Oban too, and she says to her group, watch for a, a woman with purple hair, which of course you know would be Gloria. She said, it was amazing how many women in the city of Oban have purple hair? So you may think Jesus telling his two disciples, go into the city, and when you're met by a man carrying a pitcher of water, you know, what are the odds of meeting another man carrying a pitcher of water? You think this would be uh, a common sight, but no, it wasn't. Men did not carry pitchers of water. If men carried water, they only carried it in uh, skin flasks. Men did not carry pitchers of water. And so when they met a guy, they were they were, could be pretty sure that this was a fellow that they were supposed to, to follow. So, uh, and he said, wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. You know, first of all, note that the man carrying the pitcher of water was not the man that they were sent to see. He was only to lead them to the place where they were to go and to the man that they were supposed to see. And he would then direct them into where the upper room was. You know, some people have suggested, and I think it's a good possibility, that Jesus wanted 
to celebrate the disciples, or celebrate the Passover with his disciples in kind of a secluded place, in kind of a, not, not maybe not a secret place, but at least away from everybody else. Because he had some very important things to do that was only for them for the time being. And also that he did not want Judas to have an opportunity to betray him in public prior to the time when it was it was supposed to happen. So, but, you know, all three of these sections of Scripture that I've, uh, we're going over today has an intriguing element to me in it. And this one is... The intriguing element in, in this section is that Jesus seems to have had other followers, other disciples, if you will, that his closest associates didn't even know about. Yeah. And, and, you know, that stands to reason. You know, he has, he has lots of things going on that we don't know about. You know, you remember, uh, I think... Uh, it was in Matthew and Luke that uh, Jesus, or, or that John came to uh, Jesus and said, you know, Master, we saw uh, a man who was casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him. And Jesus says, don't forbid anybody, you know, who, who is preaching and teaching in my name, because if he's not against us, you know, he's with us. You know, and it made me think, you know, what all does Jesus have going on here just in Princeton that we don't know about? I come across things all the time you know, that the Lord is doing and just amazes me. You know, we tend to think that, you know, Jesus is just working within the evangelical church, if you will. And so many churches just think he's only working within them, you know, within our four walls, us four and no more, you know. But no, Jesus has a whole lot of stuff going on that we know, we know nothing about. And I think, you know, that when we come across somebody like this who seems to be outside the mainstream church, and they are not teaching and preaching another Jesus. You know that that's the key right there. You know if they're if they're teaching and preaching another Jesus, you know say like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the the Mormons or somebody. You know, uh, then you know, I think you know we should wish them Godspeed in what they do, even though they may not be part of our group, they may not look like us, and they may have sort of a unorthodox manner you know they can reach people that we cannot reach so yeah and so uh, verse 16 so his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just like he said they shouldn't have been surprised about that yeah and there they prepared the Passover yeah there seems to be a little bit of confusion uh, as to exactly when Jesus ate the Passover I between the three synoptic gospels and the gospel of John I'm not going to get into that if you're concerned about it you know then see me afterwards 
uh, there there are logical explanations um, which hold water, but you know personally I'm inclined to agree with F.F. Uh, F. Bruce who said things like this only distract us from the really important things. The and the important thing is what Jesus did and what went on at this particular time. All right, let's look at uh, verses 17 through 21. I'll read that whole section. In the evening he came with the twelve. And now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Surely I say unto you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to one another, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. <coughs> Jesus is eating the Passover with his twelve. You know, at the first Passover, God commanded the Hebrews to stand and eat. Stand, be ready. Because you're going to be going out of here before too long. So eat eat in haste. Eat in hurry. But after their, the exodus from Egypt, after they entered the promised land, then the need to stand in the hurry was no longer, uh, no longer there. So they felt free to not sit at the table, but to recline at the table. Now, all of you, I think, have seen... Uh, da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, you know, where where Jesus is sitting in the middle and and his disciples are all sitting on one side of the table, kind of like a TV set almost. You know, you ever noticed on te television, they always leave the side of the table open where the camera is and everybody sits on the other side. You know, very unnaturally. Same way with Da Vinci's painting. You know, Da Vinci probably created the first TV kitchen set there, table setting. Well, people did not sit at a table like that in Jesus' time. The tables were more like on the on the floor, and you leaned on on your uh, right shoulder and ate. So, you know, <coughs> get the picture of the Vinci's painting out of your mind. You know that that it is it is fictitious. And he, he says, you know, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Can you imagine the surprise on at least 11 of the disciples? One of them knew who he was. Can you imagine the surprise in this room if the Lord had said, one of you will betray me? I hope not, but can you imagine the surprise of the disciples and the concern? You know, well, is it going to be me? You know, is it going to be me? Asking in innocence and, and, and asking in sincerity, you know, thinking, oh, yeah, goodness, I hope not, you know. But, you know, I know myself. I know what I'm capable of. I know that... I've done some pretty dumb things, 
Now, Peter may not have been thinking this because he said later on, you know, just a little bit later, that, you know, I'll never uh, deny you. But um, even he, you know, at that point may have been thinking, you know, I, I honestly, goodness to goodness, hope it is not me. So please, Lord, tell me it's not me. And he said, it's one of the twelve who dips with me. Now, they ate from a single bowl. Uh, it was like a gravy or something in the bowl, you know, that they would dip the bread in. This uh, matzah bread needed all the help it could get, you know. And they w- would dip the bread, you know, in, in the bowl and uh, and eat, you know. And it in Mideastern culture, the worst type of betrayal was someone who would betray you after eating with you. And it reminded me of my boss in Ohio. I know I've, I've used him in the illustration a few times before in more of a negative light. <laughs> Sorry about that. But, you know, not so this time so much. But I remember uh, one time one of his friends, one of his close friends, um, did him wrong, betrayed him. And the thing that bothered him most, and he kept saying, he kept saying, you know, we broke bread together. Which indicated, you know, the closeness of it. You know, going, eating with somebody, you know, having fellowship while eating, this kind of brings you closer together, doesn't it? For some reason or the other. And to be betrayed by somebody that you have just eaten with is adding insult uh, to injury. And so it hurt him so badly that a person that he ate with, or like he kept saying, broke bread with. And my boss in Ohio was a Jew. He was uh, a Polish immigrant that had just gotten out of Poland just barely before Hitler invaded before World War, at, during World War II. And he had a lot of the uh, Jewish ideas, you know, about how things were supposed to be. But I think even with us, to be betrayed by somebody that we eat with is especially hurtful, especially damaging to us. Verse 21 says, The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. Now, Judas is regarded as one of the most notorious sinners, the most notorious betrayers of all time, isn't he? And even though his actions fulfilled prophecy, It was his own wicked motives that condemned him. And we talked about this a little bit last week. Jesus, Judas' decision to betray Jesus was Judas's idea. It was his motive. He was not compelled to do that. When it comes time for the judgment, 
Judas cannot stand before God and say, you know, I had no choice. It was prophesied, you know, all this time that this had to happen, and, and I really had no choice. <clears throat> Judas did have a choice, and he made the wrong choice. And, and I think, you know, in, in looking at, G, at Jesus' reaction to, to Judas, I think most of us, if we had known, if we, if we had 12 friends, you know, and we were sitting around the table, and we knew that one of these friends was going to betray us, and not only betray us, but would betray us to death, that his betrayal would cause us to lose our life. <clears throat> Probably at least half of us would make sure that this guy was taken out first, you know, before he had the opportunity to do that. <clears throat> Maybe we wouldn't shoot him outright, but we would make sure that he was neutralized in some sense or the other. And I think the other half of us would probably just go ahead and shoot him outright. But <clears throat> Jesus didn't do that. You know, really, in his interaction with, with Judas at this time, he is giving him an opportunity really to repent. He is giving him an opportunity to change his mind, to do something else. I mean, Jesus could have just zapped Judas right there, you know, and made it impossible for him to do what he was going to do. But no, he gave him the opportunity to repent. He gave him the opportunity to do something different. This is because Jesus loved Judas just as much as he did the other 11 disciples just as much as he loved each one of us. But Judas did not understand the love of Jesus. Judas's heart was hardened against him, and Judas was determined to do what he was going to do. But you know, we can't miss the love of Jesus the love that he had, even for this sinner that he knew was going to betray him. Because I think if we miss that love, we miss the whole story of Jesus, what he's all about, and how much he loves each one of us. Let's look at verse 22 through 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. <coughs> you know, the Lord's Supper is something that we're all, all quite familiar with yeah, and this is where it all started he says as they were eating Jesus took the bread and blessed it broke it and gave it to them and said take eat 
This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. You know, <coughs> this was a Passover meal. And at the Passover meal, the, the head of the household would say, you know, this is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat, and let everyone who is needy come and eat of the Passover meal. Everything about the Passover meal had a symbolic meaning. meaning. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of slavery that they experienced in, in Egypt. The salt water reminded them of the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. But the main course of the meal was the lamb. And the lamb had nothing to do with their time in slavery in Egypt. The lamb had to do with a sacrifice for their sin. A judgment on sin. Now, <coughs> the Passover meal was a very structured ordeal. It had to be done exactly the way that God said it would be, had to be done. It was orderly, beautiful, and meaningful. And the disciples were very familiar with this because they had done this every year, all of their lives. They were familiar with the way the food was to be prepared. They were familiar with the songs that were to be sung. Normally, they would sing from the from the Psalms. Of course, now this wasn't done at the first Passover because the Psalms weren't written at that point in time. But by time by Jesus' time, they would sing uh, first of all from the songs of Psalms of Ascent, which are Psalms one thirteen through one fifteen, and then later in the meal, they would sing from Psalms one sixteen to one eighteen. And during the Passover meal, uh, wine was drunk. Now, <coughs> this was wine that was was watered down, wine mixed with water, and four cups would be passed uh, during the during the Passover time. Uh, the <coughs> uh, first cup would be given to everyone at the arrival for the meal. The second cup taken just before uh, the meal. Then a third cup would be taken during the meal. Uh, and um, hang on one second. <coughs> My iPad likes to scroll around sometimes. I wind up in some place where I'm not ready for yet or have already been but anyway um, and then the the fourth cup taking um, taken at the conclusion of the meal and with the final uh, singing of, of hymns and you know he says uh, take eat this is my body and for the cup this is the the blood of the new covenant 
Now, Jesus didn't go into a detailed explanation of the meaning of everything. He just interpreted it himself by, wh by what he told them. That the focus was no longer, or the Passover was no longer to be on the sufferings of Egypt, but on the sin-bearing sufferings that Jesus did for us. The focus was to, to be taken from the slavery of Egypt and from the people of God to the ultimate Passover lamb himself. So the body, the bread, the blood, the cup are to remind us of the sacrifice of the lamb. Before, the emphasis wasn't on the lamb. The emphasis was on the representation. Now we have the true representation. He has come and he has fulfilled all the symbolism, all the the different elements of the Passover and what they represent are being fulfilled in his person. You know, <coughs> Christians have debated for centuries you know, just exactly what all these things mean. You know, the Roman Catholic uh, Church has the idea of transubstantiation, which was you know, kind of brought about in the Middle Ages, that the uh, bread becomes the actual body of Jesus and the blood, uh, I mean, the, the cup, the wine becomes the actual blood of Jesus. Uh, I'm not going to go into, you know, the, the details of how absurd, really, that is. Martin Luther had, you know, he, he didn't believe in transubstantiation, you know, the founder of the, the Reformation. He didn't believe in, in transubstantiation, and that is what, what it's called, you know, the blood and, uh, I mean, the bread and the wine being transformed into the body and the blood of, of Jesus. Uh, you know, and, and I, one time I came across a very interesting fact about that. Um, and, and in the thinking of, the Roman Catholic Church that the reason that the Catholic Church built all the magnificent cathedrals that were, were built in their time and we've kind of followed suit even despite the Reformation uh, we haven't departed from everything that the Catholic Church taught that really wasn't biblical um, is that the fact that Jesus is residing in this particular building, in this cathedral, if you will. You know, if the Lord Himself is there, then we must build a magnificent structure for Him. And they're thinking, you know, not of Jesus dwelling within His people, but Jesus dwelling within the bread and the wine. Now, I've never really been able to reconcile in my mind how it can be bread and still look like bread, taste like bread, do everything that bread does, and still actually be the body of Jesus. 
and also how the wine can be wine or grape juice as we use taste like grape juice look like grape juice do what grape juice does but actually be the blood of Jesus it's just that uh, evades my, my mind and also how can you separate the body and the blood the body without the blood is lifeless but anyway, that's all beside the point. Luther came up with the idea of consubstantiation, which means that the Lord is not in the elements physically, but with the elements. Calvin taught that the presence of Jesus was in the elements spiritually, but not not physically like the Catholic Church taught. But then uh, Zwingli, who was a reformer also at the time of Calvin, taught that the bread and the wine were symbols that represent the body and the blood of Jesus. Now that's the view that we we take today you know, in most Protestant churches is that they are symbols. But it, it worries me, and it always has, and concerns me a, a great deal that we have reduced this symbolism to a, a conformity that doesn't mean so much to us. It's just something that we do. <coughs> you know, you look at the, the the disciples preparing the Passover, and like I said, they they have probably done this all of their life. They knew it by heart, you know. They knew exactly what was said, you know. That you know the youngest member of the of the family would say, you know, why are we doing this, you know? And then the father would repeat the story of of uh, the first Passover and, and the slavery in Egypt and all this stuff. They, they knew all this stuff. You know, year after year. But with us, you know, it's month after month. You know, we, we come up, we take the bread, you know, we take the cup. But do we really, really consider what it is? What is the significance of it? Why, why is it, why is it in, in so important, you know, that we do this? Is it just a ritual? Or is it something that really, really has meaning to us? I like what the Heidelberg Catechism says about it. If you've never read the Heidelberg Catechism, I, I recommend it. It says, Christ has commanded me to eat this broken bread and to drink of this cup in memory of him and therewith has given assurance first that his body was broken on the cross for me and his blood shed for me. As sure as I see with my eyes the bread broken for me and the cup communicated to me and further that with his crucified body and shed blood he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to eternal life 
as sure as I take and taste the bread and cup, which are given to me as sure tokens of the body and the blood of Christ. You know, and he said, take, eat. <clears throat> we shouldn't get so caught up in the symbolism of all this, you know, too. You know, wandering, you know, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, all these various things. The big thing is Jesus said, take. Jesus said, do it. First of all, he said, take. Now, that implies an action on our part, a decision on our part. It's as if he is holding out this for us. He is holding out this symbol of, of his body. He's holding out the symbol of this blood that was shed. And he says, take. We have to receive it. We have to reach for it. He doesn't force it on us any more than Pastor Bill or I makes you eat the bread <laughs> you know, or makes you eat the drink of the cup. You know, without, without food and without drink, we, we, we would perish, wouldn't we? Without enough food, you know, we would become unhealthy. You know, and I'm not saying that without taking the Lord's Supper, you know, we would die spiritually. But I am saying that without taking the Lord's Supper and taking it the way that he said for us to do it, you know, we will become weak spiritually. But in taking it, taking it in remembrance that this is his body, this is a symbol of the body that was hung on a cross and pierced for us. And this cup is a symbol of the blood that was shed for us. And remembering this when we take it you know, will nourish us spiritually. said this is my blood of a new covenant which is shed for many yeah. I think it's beyond all controversy about what the elements mean that this announcement by Jesus you know, that he is bringing a, a new covenant the Passover was for the remembrance of deliverance from slavery. <clears throat> the Passover now, after this Passover, is remembrance of the freedom that we have been granted from the slavery of sin. You know, no man, no mere man, could institute a new covenant between God and man. But Jesus being God, has the authority to establish a new covenant and to seal it in his blood. And this covenant focuses on the inner transformation that he works within us by the acceptance of his sacrifice for us. 
And the transformation puts God's word in us. It puts his spirit in us. He said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This covenant is about a new and close relationship that we can have with God. Because he said, I will be their God and they will be my people. So the Lord's Supper has become our Passover. The Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, or truly without sin. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There's some question as to whether or not Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover lamb when they had this Passover feast. There is no mention of them having lamb. Maybe or not, I don't know. But I do know that the Passover lamb was present because he was present in the person of Jesus. Then he said, verse 25, Surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I think he is, he is saying two things here. One, that his death was imminent. And secondly, that he will rise again. And he is looking forward to the time when we can celebrate with him you know, in the kingdom of God. And then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives, which will lead us into the next lesson the next time. Thank you, and God bless. Lisa.